Good morning. Seven minutes after nine o'clock on a think tank Thursday. Dave Rowland will have a whole host of cases. Uh, he'll probably give us the legal view on uh, the Chevron case in front of the Supreme Court. I uh, can't wait to get his take on that. It will affect you, especially if you ever buy anything. I'm just saying that's uh, that's how deeply uh, this case could affect uh, commerce. And in a positive way, uh, if it goes the way I hope and think it might. Uh, but wait, there's more. Mike Murphy is going to be with us. The city of Columbia's pension plan for its police and firefighters is underfunded. $150 million. Uh-oh. We'll chat about that in the final hour of the program as well. That would uh, start at 11 o'clock. And about 11.20, it's Dave Rowland. Uh, we've got uh, MoFirst.org, uh, uh, Ron Calzone. Uh, we've got Jim Babka. We've got the Show Me Institute. David Stokes will be with us. He'll be with us one hour from now at 10.07. And he's going to talk about uh, the return of one of the worst bills from the last legislative session. That'll affect all of us here in the state of Missouri. But Jim Babka is going to be on, too. Uh, he and I will chat about uh, plagiarism and uh, the philosophy of the Chevron case. Not the legal aspect, but the philosophy of it. But we kick it off with a man in Arizona who's still doing a happy dance because of the results in Iowa. It is uh, Kevin Jackson, the Kevin Jackson Network. Uh, good morning, sir. How are you? Doing good, Gary. Uh, still, what, what do you mean I'm doing a happy dance? The nation is doing the happy dance. You saw those results, right? Yeah, yeah, I saw them. I saw I them. Mean, I mean, there's a lot more to what happened there than just, you know, the win. We knew Trump was going to get the win. I don't think anybody knew he was going to be double the the record of any Republican that's ever done the Iowa caucuses. Actually, he did better than double. I think the what what Trump and what is resonating with him and what Iowa said is is what's going to what's sweeping the country right now. And I'm sure you covered it in that way, but this is huge. It was a big big deal. Yeah, um, Nikki Haley. They they're really pushing Haley. They're pushing Haley over DeSantis, and uh, you know, painting a picture in New Hampshire like she's going to upset the apple cart. <laughs> uh, I don't. I honestly, I don't think she's going to do that. But either. what if what if she does, or if she comes really close? Um, does it that won't matter? I no? mean, well, okay, so it, it'll matter a little bit to the to the the lemmings that don't know anything about politics. But here's why it doesn't matter. Sununu, who is the governor of New Hampshire, hates Donald Trump, so he's already greased the skids to make Nikki Haley. You know, she, she's she got advantages. Now, the person who should be most worried is DeSantis because he's got legitimate, you know, she's probably going to come in second, in, in my opinion, or, you know, yeah, second in terms of her Republicans, first among those two. And she's been there. I think they said she's spending $3 million a week in New Hampshire. So for weeks, she's been already up there spending. But here's what I don't think they, they really fully understand. The people who support Trump support Trump. 
that's whatever that number is. If it's fifty percent, he's getting it now. If they if they're going to fight, if those two are going to fight over it now that Christie's gone and Vivek is gone, and for the record, Vivek Ramaswamy's votes are going to go to Trump for the most part. So six percent of his seven or eight percent is going to Trump. So I anticipate. Trump will win either by the same margin or a larger margin. Those two will fight it out, and Haley could slip up and beat uh, DeSantis. Now, DeSantis shouldn't be too concerned about it, because, it, except for they're going into South Carolina. And I think his popularity overall is better than Nikki Haley's if you just put those two head, head to head. Now, of course, she's touting, well, I could beat Biden you know, by more votes than Donald Trump or by bigger percentage than Trump or DeSantis, which I find laughable. But that's what she's going to try to ride on. But let me just put it to you this way, Gary. At the end, after South Carolina, it will absolutely be the end of everybody's careers, but for, you know, in terms of for the presidency on the Republican side, and Donald Trump will be the, will be the, uh, will be the guy. <laughs> it's... Um... The, the hubris I, I, on her part. I, I, I wouldn't vote for her if she was the last candidate on earth. And let me ask you this, because I said the same thing. This is the first time I've ever said that about a Republican candidate. I would vote for Lindsey Graham before I voted for Nikki Woo, Haley. Boy, that's... <laughs> Isn't that saying something? Oh, yeah, that's saying a lot. I mean, I, I just, said this in 2016. I said, look, if it's Jeb Bush, Lindsey Graham, and there are a couple of other rhinos in there, I would hold my nose, but I'd vote for them over Hillary Clinton. I'm telling you right now, I would not vote if Nikki Haley was our candidate. And, what I, is, and I think there are a lot of people saying that. What is the appeal? Why is why is, is it because the media is pushing her? What, yeah. What's making, is it Democrats coming across the line to support her? What? Well, What's Reed Hoffman is, is one of her biggest supporters, and this guy hates Republicans. He donates crazy amounts of money to leftist stuff. And why is he her biggest funder? You know, one of her biggest funders. Why is it that the Democrats are strategizing? They strategize, by the way, Trump won by 30 points in Iowa. That's with Democrats strategizing to try to keep him from winning. They're doing the same thing in New Hampshire. He's going to win there. I even said this the other day uh, on my show. I said, Donald Trump had our economy booming for four years. We we know he was under fire from DOJ for them not to get him elected again and things like that. And you can see that. But you nobody saw the infighting between the Fed and the people controlling interest rates, the people determining if we're going to need quantitative easing, et cetera. They were working against Trump and his economy, trying to destroy it his entire four years. And it went nowhere but up, except when the Democrats strategized with the Chinese to kill our economy through COVID. I want to just people to understand this guy, and I put it in a football analogy. He's, he's playing football and his offensive line doesn't block for him. He hits the defensive line. They all jump on him, and he still goes down the field with everybody on his back. That's what this guy's up against, and they don't get it. That's why people love Trump, because they're saying his offensive line's not blocking for him. The defense has a full shot at him, and all Donald Trump does is pick him up and carry him down the field. That's his appeal. 
And Nikki Haley's never going to have it. DeSantis is, and neither is any other candidate. Not in this time in, in history is anybody else going to have that. Because I think most people listening would agree. I, I can't think of anyone who would fight 91 indictments in four different jurisdictions over nonsense after having battled everything Trump has battled and still be surviving, still survive it. I don't know anybody. Well, I don't know what it takes to get you in Trump's corner, but we'll we'll keep working on it. In the meantime, I <laughs> I am up against the clock and I have to take a break. I want to remind everybody at uh, 9:35 Jim Babka is going to be with us and uh, he's going to talk about plagiarism. It's uh, an interesting aspect of it and the Chevron case, which is going to be interesting too. We'll find out what uh, what Kevin thinks about that Chevron case. Does he think it'll go the right way? That's next on the Gary Nolan Show. Think Tank Thursday, Zimmer Radio Network. It is uh, 19 minutes after 9 o'clock. Jim Babka next. Dave Rowland will be with us. Uh, and that'll be at uh, 11.15. We've got Mike Murphy, Como Buzz. Uh, in the meantime, we've got Kevin Jackson, who I'm slowly beginning to uh, convince uh, that uh, he should support Donald Trump. It's, it's been a task, but he's... He's getting closer. He's he's almost a fan. Almost. Uh, almost. It's close, I'll tell you. Uh, before I get into the Chevron case, are you familiar with a guy named Charleston White? No. No. All right. Uh, a listener wanted me to ask you about your thoughts on the guy, but I, I didn't know who he was either. He's a comic, I guess. I don't got nothing to do with White. You know what I'm saying, Gary? No, he's black. <laughs> well, his last name is White, so that's enough. I don't need to know. Well, you are such a racist. <laughs> Honest to God. <laughs> All right. The Chevron case. I'm just curious to see if you think the Supreme Court has the testicular fortitude to reverse the Chevron case, which would essentially um, affect every... Uh, Every bit of commerce in the country that's regulated by the government. I don't know enough about it, to be honest. Uh, when you mentioned it prior to the break, I, I was going to try to look it up, but I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the, I don't know what it involves. Well, the the, the government uh, Congress sets up a bureaucracy. You name what, whatever it is: Health and Human sure. Services, Department of Education, uh, EPA, mm -hmm. and give them a task, and then they come up with all these rules and regulations. And if they take you to court, the courts defer to that federal bureaucracy. Right. It's like and tax court. It's like yeah, it's like you you can't win. Yeah, no uh, way to win. And and there's a, a part of the challenge uh, that argues, I think, that if you write a rule, it's like a law. Right. And Congress has to vote on it. Well, here's what I will. I don't know enough about that to comment, except here's what I'll tell you. The attack on the fossil fuel industry probably means that it's going to, you know, it's, it's not something that's going to go in Chevron's favor. But there's something that happened that I think people need to be made aware of that addresses a little bit of this. Uh, and you, you guys may know this. So Hertz is going yeah. away from electric vehicles, right? Yeah. And so they were originally, at the end of this year, were going to have 25% of their vehicles will be electric vehicles. And they have roughly, in 2000, they had, um, I'm sorry, in 2022, I believe, they had 424,000 vehicles in their fleet. So they were going to have about 100,000 electric vehicles in their fleet. Well, currently, they are now reducing their fleet by 30%. So they're going to get rid of 
20,000 vehicles. So they, they ne- they're not even going to get anywhere near the 100,000, and now they're reducing it, going back to gas-powered uh, automobiles. Now, for most people, you know, that's, that's the end of the story. But my mind says, wait a minute, in the time of Joe Biden and the attack on fossil fuels and, and gas-guzzling engines and things like this, you have a major corporation who essentially thumbed its nose at Biden and said, you know what we were going to do with EVs? We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to go, we're going to reverse our policy and we're going back the other direction. Now, if it were just them, I, I, I may not pose this next thing, but also Ford is doing it. GM is doing it. They're all cutting their EV battery pr- production or their, their cars, the number of cars, and they're all reverting back in some way to gas engines. And what I said is, I believe that's one of the biggest signs that the Biden, industry, Biden uh, administration is over and that they're ready to usher in Donald Trump, a guy who got us out of the Paris Accords, but doesn't believe in global climate farce, isn't going to dedicate any money to it, and that shift has to happen again. Now, here's another signal. Gavin Newsom, who now wants to be perceived as a moderate, Guess what he did in California with his $69 billion budget deficit? Almost everything the guy is cutting back on and putting back into the budget has to do with pushing back on his own guidelines around climate change. So what are they telling you? And, and anyway, that was, that was kind of my thought. So going back to Chevron, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen there. I, yeah, I, I would, all right. I, I, just, I think that they, uh, they're going to really put a dent uh, in the government's ability uh, to write rules without Congress approving. Good. We'll see what happens, but I do think that. On the battery thing, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal, uh, and, and the title of, this, of the article in the journal is The Electric Vehicle Cheating Scandal. <laughs> when car makers test gasoline-powered vehicles for compliance with the Transportation Department's fuel efficiency rules, they have to use real values measured in a laboratory. By contrast, under the Energy Department's rule, they can arbitrarily multiply the efficiency of electric cars by 6.67%. Uh, no, by 6.67. This means that although a 2022 Tesla Model Y tests at the equivalent of about 65 miles per gallon in a laboratory, roughly the same as a hybrid, it's counted as having an absurdly high compliance value of 430 miles per gallon. The number has no basis in reality. Well, but apparently it has no gasoline in it. It's infinity miles <laughs> per gallon. I mean, when you think about it. But here's what's funny. I don't know if you've seen this story. People can't crank their cars in the Northeast. Yeah. Cars. <laughs> I mean, what good is in a, a car if you can't drive it? If you got to push your Tesla, it isn't going to do you much good. Yeah. Those things are useless in the cold. Well, uh, well, here's the other thing, Gary. I, I, I've never owned an electric car. So I was riding with a buddy of mine, he and his girlfriend, and, and I was in the back, and they, they were in the Tesla. And she says, well, I'm going to take the Tesla, you know, to whatever. He goes, well, and they were looking at the gauge, and he goes, well, I don't know if you're going to be able to make it. And she goes, I, I think I can. And then he told me, and I didn't know this, he says, these electric cars get worse fuel efficiency on the highway, which, of course, with, elect- with gas cars, it's better. And I go, really? He goes, well, and I thought about it. Well, yeah. Well, gas yeah, cars, because- correction, gas cars get better mileage to a certain point. Over, over 50, 55 miles an hour, the the mileage starts to get worse and worse. 
Well, what I'm getting at is you're not stopping and starting like you do in the city. So you might, they always tell you 17 miles in the city, 24 miles on the highway. That's legit. It's been tested and they know it. And it's because you're not stopping and starting. So it is getting, it's not, the engine isn't performing better. You're just not stopping and starting. But with the electric cars, the longer, longer you go, you're, you, the actually it goes down. He says, you know, to get 350 miles out of a charge, you can, you better not have the heater on. You know, <laughs> now, I didn't realize this. So, and, and they were watching the gauge, and, and they have to guess. You know, when I look at my gas tank and it says I got a quarter, and it gives me an estimate of you can drive about 70 miles, I figure I got about 80, <laughs> but not with an electric car. No, so, then you got to figure you got about 60. Yeah, yeah, it, and so you're figuring out where to charge. Look, it, 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 does it have its purpose? Yes. Is it should it be mandated that we make this radical transformation over? Absolutely not. And look at these cars that are failing. The cars, the number of cars that that when it when it was flooded on that last hurricane in Louisiana, how many of those cars were stranded? And people in electric cars, or certainly, I mean, in gas powered vehicles, were just zooming right by them. So look, it, it, it's all this needs to be looked at, and and it. it the government is so hell-bent, this particular one, on making this transition away from you know, carbon-based fuels to electric that they've lost sight of the reality that we are never going to get rid of carbon-based fuels because it's actually powering the grid. And let's not even get into the battery production and all little African kids that are dying from poisoning, you know, from looking for lithium and cobalt. It's insane. It is insane. Uh, John Kerry is finally uh, going to, uh, I really hope he goes back into private life, uh, because I think the guy is an idiot. He's going Uh, to work for Biden, man, and he's going to go get the youth vote for him. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Frankenstein, you know, going into school, he's going to scare the little kiddies into voting for for Joe Biden. (laughs) I keep remembering Rush Limbaugh's nickname for him was Lurch. He looks like Lurch. And he looks like Lurch. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, yeah, he's. I, I want him gone, because, and I want Al Gore gone because these guys are liars. They're snake oil salesmen. And, and enough. Look, we all are certainly conser- conservatives, the, the hunters and the, the people, the, the farmers. We know land management. You know, we do a better job with, with stuff than anybody. And, by the way, go to China and tell me that they give a crap about clean air. Go to Indonesia. Don't swim. In their in their oceans in their lakes because you will get a bug that you that Mer, that makes Mercer look like his Girl Scouts. I'm just telling you, these people are filthy. They're dirty. They're they're messing up the planet, and we're paying for it. Well, China, there's CO2 emissions, and I don't really care about CO2, but there this is this is the boogeyman of the 21st century uh, has soared, uh, and they account for 53 percent of the world's coal generation um well i li- i live there and i will tell you it is filthy you wear a mask there not because of covid but because you do not want to breathe in the smog it- it's filthy and it's there's no changes whatsoever i haven't been in years but from what i hear from my friends there's no change it's only gotten dirtier and of course you go out into the provinces and the air is clean it's, it's like any city here in america you go to la it's dirty go 30 miles outside of the city clean air 
Yep, they're using coal to generate electricity, not those solar panels they're selling to the idiots over here. Uh, doesn't make sense at all. Kevin Jackson, the Kevin Jackson Network. Anything new on that page? I got about five seconds. Anything hey, man, new? go there. Great stuff, especially our merch. People will love our merch. So you have, you're finally carrying that T-shirt with my face on it. Right. We got so to get the Gary Nolan line. So you can make some money. All right, Kevin, thank you. Jim Babka, plagiarism and Chevron on The Gary Nolan Show. This is The Gary Nolan Show. It's 935. Glad to have you with us at uh, 1005 The Show Me Institute. A uh, lousy piece of legislation making its way back from last session to this session. We'll talk about it. Uh, it uh, like I said, 10.05. In the meantime, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, uh, among other things, uh, plagiarism and Chevron. The Chevron, uh, it, this is such a monumental case, uh, depending on the outcome, that it, it, you just have no idea how it's going to affect commerce. It, it's, it will reach Every single aspect of commerce, and frankly, even your private property. Uh, but there's a philosophical side to this, and uh, Jim Babka is with us. Uh, Grace Arkey, or just look up Jim Babka on your favorite platform. Uh, try to watch it without listening, without looking at his face, because uh, it is a distraction. It's like, oh, I can't concentrate on that. I am, I am stunning. You've... You, you stunned a lot of people, yeah. Uh, yeah but anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> so the Chevron thing is at top of my mind because of the the importance of it and the impact of it, depending on and how the Supreme, Supreme Court, Court votes. And the Supreme Court heard the case literally yesterday. Yes. So, and you'll notice that the the regime, you know, status media. Uh, is apoplectic because they actually think it's going to get overturned. This is only a 40-year-old case, but it was kind of like the final installment of the progressive movement. It's the, it's the method by which they're sheltering or sneaking in all of their environmental regulations along with a host of other things that they know that they can't get done in Congress. So philosophically, um, what, is, what is Chevron about? I mean, what... Chevron created it uh, is a doctrine, and I believe individuals should have doctrines, not governments, but it's a doctrine, and that doctrine serves as a precedent. And uh, it basically, it, it, it sets up a two-part, they call it a two-part test, but I'm going to explain why I think it's three real quick here. So first, they look at uh, any action by any federal agency and say, was there an uh, unambiguous expression of congressional intent contained within the statute? Right. Is it clear that the Congress wanted something? They didn't explain what they wanted, but they kind of did. They kind of gave the broad parameters of it. If that's there, uh, the, the bureaucracy uh, is well within their uh, powers. But that's not always true. There's Congress is frequently very vague and ambiguous. And so what they will do is they will strive. They will strive to find uh, a reasonable interpretation. And if they can find, determine that it's reasonable, then they will still defer to the bureaucracy. So in other words, Congress hasn't spoken. That legislative power doesn't exist. And then uh, in every one of the case, and this is the third part to me, this is the third test in a way, is that when they get into the nitty gritty of trying to determine what's reasonable and not, they do it on a case by case basis. So, you know, the idea that somehow or other everything is made faster or smoother or better by a bureaucracy, no, you may find yourself in the snares of bureaucracy and you want to go to court. 
And basically what they've done is they've given the judicial power over to these bureaucracies. These bureaucracies are able to come and make an argument about why they feel their actions are reasonable, and you're not allowed to have any judicial response to them. But you can go ahead and test it. You can roll the dice and spend you know, several hundred thousand dollars fighting them, maybe millions, fighting them, but you're not, your chances of winning are very, very low because they are supposed to defer. Now, we tried to address this very same question in a lot of ways with the Right to Laws Act. The Right to Laws Act said that you know, recognized that there's a separation of powers here. Like, if you were to ask me the biggest thing that we have lost in our history, the thing that makes us the least American compared to where the founders started things, it's the separation of powers issue. We don't honor the separation of powers. They're all in unified. They don't, they don't uh, uh, you know, use their power co-equally and, and kind of resist one another and, and, and be zealous of it. Uh, people famously remember Nancy Pelosi with the line, first we have to pass Obamacare to see what's in it. Yeah. And every time someone says this, they think that's a read the bill statement. It's not. So imagine that you have a bunch of children in a room and uh, you want to give them coloring pages. Someone drew the lines. That's Congress. But what color those pages are going to be done is going to be done by the bureaucrats. The, the, the children in the room are going to do it. They're going, that's how this is going to be done. And this is a, uh, she was saying this because they didn't know at the time what agencies and office holders were, that they had created at that time, who was even going to hold those offices, let alone what they were going to decide to do. And almost all your government is run this way. Congress only cares about taking care of its, its benefactors and donors and, and so forth and public opinion, but they don't actually color in the lines like they're supposed to. Uh, most of your law is written by, uh, by bureaucrats. And the Chevron decision says that the courts can't come to your aid when they when that wasn't specified, when you weren't represented. So, um, philosophically, this came from from whom? Is this twentieth uh, century progressivism? This is, this is true progressivism. Like a lot of people like to use mix woke and socialism and AOC and all this and Bernie and all this other stuff into one big progressive package, and there are progressives that do that. So I understand why people do it. But uh, progressivism is a specific philosophy. It's the, it's the idea that we should be scientifically managed, that there are experts who have spent tons of time studying a given subject. You cannot possibly know what those experts know. And that includes your Congress. So you send off a Congress, and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're not your best and brightest, right? And they can't possibly know all these other things. They have to rely on the experts to do this. And the experts know how to implement the day-to-day -day enactment of the laws that Congress passes. And so we defer to experts. That's what progressivism really is, is deference to experts. Um, all right. I, um, I, I'm seriously hoping that uh, the courts reject this. But the legalese of all this, Dave Rowland will touch on in the final hour of the program. And the can implication... I throw, can I throw in one more thing about this? Uh, we yeah. filed an amicus brief in this case last summer. This is a case that we're paying close attention to. Who's we? Downsize DC. Downsize yeah, DC. Yeah. Uh, Downsize DC filed a case and uh, filed a brief. Uh, we, we were we're on the gun owners uh, of America brief. And you might remember that there was an abrupt reversal in how bump stock regulation was handled after the Vegas shooting. Uh, the president basically kind of insisted and demanded that the bureaucracy figure out a way to implement that. So there was like a re literal reversal. There was no law passed or anything. They just suddenly made something illegal. Uh, the courts have not known what to do in the face of virtually any bureaucratic. So even in this particular case where there hasn't even been a specific congressional edict upon which uh, this was based, the court still strove as hard as it possibly could to 
Chevron, to, to extend Chevron deference even to this regulatory act. All right. Um, I, I've, I've got to move on because uh, time is of the essence. And where I want to head to, uh, head to now is plagiarism because you just uh, – done a you've just done a you've just done is that right <laughs> uh, you just did <laughs> you done did you done did you just done did a, 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 a dropped <laughs> Folks, a video do not try this at home gary no. is professional. <laughs> yes <laughs> takes years and years of practice to become this eloquent you've <laughs> just released a video see how i got around that <laughs> podcast <laughs> a bleep, 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 bleep. <laughs> yeah, that's all folks yes uh, dealing with uh, plagiarism, and uh, in fact, you're releasing a second one today. Did you release the second one today? Yeah, the second one came out this morning. The, the, the first one was about Claudine Gay and more about intersexuality sectionality and the debate that occurred over uh, uh, anti-Semitism and so forth that went on in that particular case. But plagiarism was ultimately the thing that, uh, that we argue in the, in the episode that caused her to uh, step back. She didn't leave Harvard, but she did a step down from the presidency and uh, still gets the same salary and everything. So we analyzed her case and Bill Ackman's role in it because Bill Ackman uh, was one of the people that came after her pretty hard uh, to, uh, and, and made plagiarism an issue. Largely, we argue, out of convenience to get just to getting rid of her. It became about getting rid of Claudine Gay. And they were successful. They got her out of the presidency. But he wrote a 12-page, when you print it out, 12 pages long tweet. Remember when tweets were just a few characters? Yeah. 12 pages long and explaining very eloquently and with great nuance uh, why there should be a plagiarism, uh, an AI-based system that would go through all of academic, the, the academic record, the entire corpus of all the professors' work, and, and see how much plagiarism there actually was. And what the implications were going to be and with some of the questions we were going to face and, and ask. So we took his essay and sat down and started talking about it. Uh, I think this could potentially be a huge thing. It could change our culture dramatically. You want to give us a little bit more? I mean, you've... you've... Yeah, I think... I uh, think I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what. That... Hang on, get your, get your thoughts in order because Brian wants to play these commercials. He actually yeah, enjoys them. People don't know that. Yeah, he know. actually, he likes them. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take a quick break. Back with Jim Babka, plagiarism next on the Gary Nolan Show, the Zimmer Radio Network. It is uh, ten, 10 minutes to ten. And <laughs> oh, I just heard this really, really stupid joke, uh, and I shouldn't even be laughing at it. And yet I'm, I'm almost out of control laughing at it. But Jim Babka is with us, and uh, we interrupted you, Jim, because we had to play a commercial. So. Please continue. Uh, we were, I think, talking about, you know, kind of what we're covering in the episode or why this is important to people. Yeah. And I, I, so in the, in the episode, I think probably the most uh, potentially intriguing thing that people want to hear in the, in the episode is that I tell a story of when I was overtly and 100% plagiarized uh, and how I, uh, what I learned from it. And my lesson is rather surprising. It turns out that I think there are times when being uh, copied is good. And so I explain, uh, explain that. And that gets a lot of the episode is doing what Bill Ackman did, which is dealing with the various nuances uh, of, of what is and what is not plagiarism, what is really bad or evil or theft and what is or fraud and what is not. And, and so we, we go through all that because I think it's going to end up having implications first for uh, something like this will happen, whether Bill Ackman instigates it or not. 
Um, and second, uh, it will happen in academia uh, in particular. And then, but will it stop at academia? Will it start to spill out into journalism? Will it begin to spill out into other people's work? Will it become part of your life, even if, say, you're a publisher of some kind? I think there's going to be implications for this. This is kind of a, turning AI against AI, and it'll be interesting to see what uh, uh, what the what the long-term social effects of this are. So we get into all of that in the episode. So um, it's it's Graysarchy, which I'm. I'm betting there are people driving that will never remember that, but they can just look your name up, Jim Babka. They'll remember that. Yeah, and it's, we're on virtually, uh, we're not on Apple, but we're on virtually every other podcasting platform out there, so. Why, why aren't you on Apple? Do you don't uh, like Apple? <laughs> Apple ever do something to you? Yeah, their, their, their registration process was a bit cumbersome, and it's on my to-do list. So. Too much for you, huh? Yeah, too much for me. Okay, just uh, <laughs> just wanted to find out why you weren't on Apple. All right. Uh, <laughs> and I did apologize for that plagiarism, didn't I? But, <laughs> you know, I just want to make sure that no, we're you know, square. Actually, actually, the source of the plagiarism was in Missouri. It had the, the story takes place in Missouri. Really? Yes, yes. Well, are you going to share it with us or not? No, no, no. The people can listen to the show. It's a great story, though. Oh, you're not going to share it with my audience? Well, the, I, I am sharing it with your audience. They can yeah. find it on YouTube right now. Rumble. Podbean. <sighs> now I have to go back and watch Spotify. the damn thing. Pandora. So unfair. All right. Um, all right, listen. Uh, the, um, the Libertarian Party, are you following the presidential candidates? little bit i've met uh i've met the, the all but one of them that i'm aware of um are you impressed with are, are there any that you are not impressed are there anyone you go like oh no 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 we like we had a guy here uh in missouri that kept running for office and his name was chief Wana doobie and i would i wouldn't even entertain him i wouldn't have him on the show i wouldn't endorse him i wouldn't anything him it, it was like an embarrassment um, um, I feel that the four individuals that I'm aware of are each earnest and uh, believe that they're doing the right thing. Um, I have, uh, I've actually sat at, and talked at length with one of them on more than one occasion. Um, I, I, but none of them have what I would consider to be a robust campaign right now. They're all very, very backwater. Um, you're not, they're not out in the mainstream. They're not raising so, you know, I was on a campaign the way uh, our audience should probably know that the way that you and I met was through the Harry Brown campaign. You know, we were actually out doing mainstream media, national television appearances on cable and, and national, big national radio shows and, and so forth and putting out a regular itinerary. We did 831, I think it was, I don't remember for sure anymore, interviews in a 10 and a half month span. And and you would recognize a lot of the names on the list. There were major media all over it, and that was pre-nomination. There's nothing like that happening here. Uh, none of these campaigns are, are are you know big, funded, vibrant membership growing machines. Um, again, nice fellows. I'm just not quite sure you know that this is going to amount to anything. God, I miss Harry Brown. A uh, message from Tim. He says, "For Mr. Babka, your definition of progressivism is what I define as technocracy." Could you explain the difference, please? 
there is no difference. They're 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 the same thing. Now, progressivism is a they're, old liberals had to run from the word liberal because they had so sullied destroyed it. And when the Berlin Wall fell, everybody recognized that socialism was a bad deal. And so they began repairing their image by grabbing. This is what they do. They, they, you know, they grab every word. Liberal used to be a good thing. They grabbed and ruined that. Now they grab progressivism, and they're putting their own stamp on that now, too. So it's become something broader in most people's minds. But it's actually is, it, it basically is technocracy. It's the idea that there are experts, and we should listen to them at a minimum. But a progressive actually believes that they will bring the future to us if we, if we are required to listen to them. And we should do that because we're too stupid. Or too stupid, yep. Yeah. Um, they started off as progressives at the turn of the last century. And then progressivism got a bad name, and that's when they adopted liberalism. Well, progressivism existed, and it was actually bigger in the Republican Party than it was in the Democrats. You had... You had uh, uh, Democrats in the late 1800s that would have, uh, you would have recognized a lot of the themes in like the Ron Paul campaign. They're very similar. So it was the Republicans that were more progressive at the time. That, that basically began to fade away in, in uh, basically over how things went in the South. And the parties, you know, kind of went different directions. But the progressive movement, you know, the New Deal is the ultimate progressive experiment. The Great Society is the second biggest, you know, progressive experiment. And then you get this Chevron decision basically allowed them to kind of like sneak the, the camel's nose under the tent on a whole array of issues. But the, way, the one they care about the most is the ability that they're going to have on the environment. They don't believe they're going to be able to get Congress to do their bidding. And so they're really upset the, about the potential for Chevron to be overturned and, and probably, uh, frankly, the likelihood of it being overturned. Well, time will tell. Jim, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, folks can find his uh, podcasts uh, everywhere except Apple because uh, it's too complicated. For Jim, right. Jim, for Jim, yeah. Uh, but he's working on that, and, and he'll probably yeah. accomplish it pretty soon. Jim, thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is professional radio. All right. Jim Babka, thank you for being with us. we got to move on. Coming up, David Stokes is going to be with us. He is uh, from the Show Me Institute, their director of municipal policy. And apparently we are going to experience here in the state of Missouri uh, the return of one of the worst bills from last session. The last legislative session, so we'll uh, we'll we'll do that at at ten oh five. We've um, we've got Ron Calzone. Uh, he's going to be with us at ten thirty five. Mike Murphy, uh, he'll be with us at eleven oh five, and then Dave Rowland. Uh, and it, the Mike Murphy piece, if you're uh, in the Columbia area. Uh, the funding of the pension plans for law enforcement and fire, it looks pretty seriously underfunded. We'll give you the, the details on, uh, on all of that. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about uh, Chevron as well, the legal aspect of it. We've been, what I've been trying to do is tell you the impact and socially where it came from. Now the legal side with Dave Rowland. Coming up on the Gary Nolan Show. The Zimmer Radio Network. This is The Gary Nolan Show 